It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. I'm quite certain I've used this story to illustrate a point uh, at least once and maybe even twice in the past, but as I began to consider our text and the thrust of the qualifications that I wanted to consider this morning and their relationship to the excellence of this work of the elder, I felt that it was in order, so bear with me in repeating myself. But there's a great story that B.B. Warfield tells, and if you don't know who B.B. Warfield is he's, um, he's perhaps the, the greatest theologian ever produced in the history of America. He was the great theologian at Princeton Seminary in the 19th century and then on to the 20th century. A man of, um, of immense learning, a, a, a profound intellect. Raised in the Presbyterian Church and raised on the Shorter Catechism. So he has an article in, in one of his works which is entitled, Is the Shorter Catechism worthwhile is the shorter catechism worthwhile and you know at the time of the writing of that particular article there was there was widespread debate in presbyterian churches and here i mean conservative presbyterian churches and i mean the most conservative of presbyterian churches about whether catechism was even worthwhile at all anymore you see um the sunday school um the sunday school program had taken root across America and its churches in the 19th century, and it was thought that it was, it was a far better way to inculcate the values and the ideas of the church than the catechism. And so there were all kinds of people who had all kinds of discussions about whether this outmoded tool of the Reformation was of any use. And so after giving a series of reasons why, it was so necessary and so vital to, to the life and to the piety and the character of the people of God. He concludes this great article with a story about two soldiers. And these two soldiers were uh, officers of the United States Army and they were serving in a western region that was full of, of tumult and violence and, and rioting. And so, as the story goes, one officer was uh, looking across the crowd and all he saw was riotous, uh, sort of angry mobs of people. And then something caught his eye. And what he did was fix his eye upon a man walking towards him with a resolute bearing and a dignified manner. And he watched him walk through those crowds without wavering and without flinching. And when that man finally passed him, unknown to the soldier who was observing that man, the man whom he had been observing did an about-faced, wheeled around, came right back to that soldier and that army officer, and he stuck his finger in his chest, and he says, I demand an answer to this question. What is the chief end of man? to which that observing army officer said to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that man who had been under the watch of that 
of that soldier and that officer said, I knew you were a catechism boy when I first saw you. The point of it is to say that is what should happen. I, I believe with all of my heart that the value of the catechism as we train our young people in it and our covenant children in the catechism is that it should produce people of character and of composure and of bearing. And the reason is because God has joined soundness and doctrine with soundness in life. Character and doctrine go together hand in glove. And so I would apply that here this morning, just as we would expect certain qualities or attributes from a military officer who's leading a group of soldiers on, on, a, on a dangerous mission that we would require of him leadership ability, moral character, integrity and composure, all of those things. We may ask the same question this morning. Well, what kind of qualities would we expect out of an elder? After all, we already established the point last week from the Word of God that the Apostle Paul commended the desire for the work and the office of eldership because of the excellence of the office. Remember that? We made that great appeal last week from the Word of God showing you the excellence of the work of the office of elder. And so today the Apostle Paul transitions now from the work of the office of elder to the character. And he says here that the kind of people who Christ would raise up to lead and to oversee and to govern and to bless and preserve and to guide his church are a people of a particular quality. And that's required because of the nature of the work requires quality in the person, spiritual quality. They cannot be separated from one another. Just as quality of life cannot be separated from the catechism questions and answers that our young children are learning. We would never divorce those things. They, they hold together. Truth and action hold together. Because God has forged them that way. But what you notice here in our text, and I, I sort of intentionally read verse 1 and then on to verse 2, because the apostle really goes out of his way to forge a link between the excellence of the work and the excellence of the character of those who would do the work. And it is um, somewhat regrettable, I guess, uh, I would say this morning that our English translation here in the New American Standard begins with an overseer. An overseer. Uh, because it really doesn't begin that way. It does not begin that way. In fact, the way it begins in the original is it must be therefore. It must be therefore. Now, grammatically uh, and therefore semantically, that word therefore takes precedence and priority in translation. And what it does is it, is it reaches back and links back to the excellence of the work of the elder. You see, what the Apostle Paul is saying is just precisely because the work is excellent, therefore. We could see that he now is inferring under the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit he is inferring a series of qualities uh, in the man 
whom Christ would use to do this excellent work of the office. But, but it's even stronger than that because it's not just a logical necessity. It is a moral necessity because the strength of this verb is powerful. It must be. And there's only a couple ways you can take that. Either it's a divine compulsion, and I don't think it quite fits here, or a moral necessity. That's what's in view here. A moral necessity. What the Apostle is saying, it is a moral necessity that the person who is raised up by Christ to do the excellent work of the office of elder must bear these qualities. So keep that in mind as we work our way through the various qualities and characteristics which the Apostle unfolds at least through verse 7, and some would even argue that it extends all the way even through the exposition of the qualities of the officer of deacon. But this morning, we're going to focus on the first five qualities here. We're not going to make it out of verse 2 because we simply don't have time. We have our hands full. In other words, just thinking about the qualities the Apostle Paul lists here in verse 2 at the outset, above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, and respectable. All five of these group together thematically and categorically and morally. These five qualities expound the kind of spiritual integrity which is morally necessary for the excellent work of the office of elder. So let's go through them one by one. And and we begin with what is undoubtedly the most difficult. If we can get past uh, the very first one, we could make some progress, I suppose. Because as we look at the first quality above reproach, I think every person would naturally shrink back from this. Because the word um, above reproach means above criticism. Just let that settle a minute. If it didn't already scare you enough and in the way we would understand above reproach in English, this is basically what it means. Above criticism and not open to blame. Now, that feels like a word you can't negotiate with, right? It feels like a word that doesn't have shades of gray and nuance within it. It's blunt force in its feel, isn't it? It's very direct. It feels very precise. It's, it's very demanding. Something else to consider about this word above approach is, is its very position. Commentators have long acknowledged that the head position here, and this is the first of, of many qualifications of the office of elder, the head position of this noun, uh, in a sense, is a general and overarching quality. In other words, it would be adequate to say that if the apostle was pushed up against the wall and was asked, what is required of a man to fulfill the excellent work of the office of elder, and boil it down to one term, he would do this one. Above reproach. Above reproach. That's the word here. Anaphalemtus, above reproach. And then we might be able to say, 
what do you mean by that, Apostle Paul? And he would say, well, everything else that follows. It would seem that what follows here would be the concrete applications or explications of what is meant by being above reproach. But still, as we think about this, it feels like it's intimidating. And I feel under a particular obligation this morning to see uh, what I can do to strike a balance. To see what I can do to strike a balance, to bring some perspective to how to understand this quality of above reproach. And see, as I think about that duty, I think of the person who's sitting here this morning and hears this is the, the quality of life for one called to the eldership, and I can scarcely imagine that any man here is ready to leap out of their chair and say, that's me. And I know that's the case because I've had far too many conversations over the years with men aspiring to the ministry of the eldership to say, I can't get past the first qualification." And so what I think we need to do is to do our best to give perspective from the Word about how to understand it. Clearly, the Apostle Paul says this is a non-negotiable, unyielding quality. So what do we have to do? We have to, one, not tone down the term so it means nothing. Clearly, this is a standard. Paul is not suggesting us to be standardless. You don't lead with this. So he can't tone it down so it means nothing. And yet, on the other hand, uh, we still need to set the bar high enough for the standard so that there's a real qualification here that is a distinguishing qualification. After all, not everybody's going to meet this. Not everybody's going to be able to meet this. So we have to do two things. And the first thing that I think will help us gain some perspective on it is a turnover to 1 Timothy 6.14, where precisely the same word is used. Precisely the same term is used in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. And I'm just going to go ahead and read from verse 13, because the sentence begins there, actually. And the apostle says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. There's our term, reproach. Now I want you to notice the gravity of the exhortation, first of all. He says, I'm saying this, I'm making this charge before none less than God who gives life to everything and His Christ who's seated in exalted in glory at His right hand. Before the Father and before the incarnate Son, I charge you. So that's pretty powerful already. And then it feels very sweeping when He says, you keep the commandment. Well, that just even made more difficult because it sounds like He's saying you keep every commandment without stain or reproach. Well, some people have said, and I think this is probably true, the reason why commandment is singular and not plural is because the apostle is likely referring to uh, all the things pertaining to ministry which he has been expounding to Timothy 
in this letter. This is about how to conduct the life of the church appropriately and according to Christ. But even so, even if it doesn't refer to the whole of the law of God, it's still a monumental standard to say you keep it without stain and without reproach. So the first thing that we want to say here is there really is this strong, immovable standard. There's a strong, immovable, heavy standard. And it's the highest one. Because he doesn't say to Timothy, I, I, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ to, to try really hard. He does not say, Timothy, do your best. He does not say to Timothy, don't beat yourself up now if you can't do this. No, he, he really raises the bar. He says, this is the charge. You need to feel the weight and the gravity of the calling of God upon your life. And that's what every person should feel who seeks to serve in the ministry or in the eldership. They must feel the weight. They must feel the gravity. And so we have a high standard here. But on the other hand, we have to see, um, well, what exactly does it mean? And, and some have found help, and I would say, the preponderance or the majority have found some help in thinking about the root meaning of the term. The root meaning of the term. If you dig deep down into this term which is translated above reproach, it literally means not be taken hold of. Not be taken hold of. And so many have said from there that it's more about is there any charge of unfitness? Is there any charge of unfitness? And so Calvin, noting some of this, here's what he says. There will be no one found among men that is free from every vice. It is one thing to be blemished with ordinary vices which do not hurt reputation because they're found in the men of the highest excellence. It's another thing to have a disgraceful name. Stained by baseness. That a bishop may not be without authority. He enjoins those be selected who have an honorable reputation and are not chargeable with remarkable vice. Now, that feels like it helps a lot right there. Because basically what Calvin is saying is of course we're not speaking of sinlessness. That should be obvious. Of course the standard of above reproach is not sinlessness. But it's still a high standard, and maybe, he says, we could look at it like this. Not chargeable. Matthew Henry comes very close to breaking this down as well when he says, he must not lie under any scandal or occasion for blame. So I think that helps begin to put into perspective the, the moral force and, and the quality of the integrity and character here. We have some workable grounds. It's, it's a high standard, but it isn't perfection or sinlessness. It's not an impossible one. Otherwise, there'd be no elders and pastors in the church. But as soon as we say that, we must absolutely insist on it for a couple of reasons. We should let ourselves feel the weight of this 
for two reasons. One is personal and the other is prejudicial. There's a personal reason for this qualification and that is that Satan will use any sin or moral failing to lead a man into ruin under the pressures of the office. This is about personal protection. Because if a man has a particular moral weakness that's glaring and a scandal in his life, Satan will work overtime to exploit it. So if a man's marital life isn't in order, he dare not take up eldership in the church because Satan will exploit that, believe me. If a man's family life isn't at peace and his home isn't in order, Satan will paint a bright red-orange target around that home and those children. And he will seek to ruin them to the shame of that elder. See, whatever weakness you enter into the office with is the very weakness Satan will use to try to ruin you. So that's why scandal in the life of a person is very dangerous when it comes to this. Chargeability with scandal is so dangerous because we can be sure Satan will work overtime to destroy that man and his family if he has one. I'll share with you some stories in a moment. The other is prejudicial. We have personal and then... We have a prejudicial reason, and, and, and the prejudicial reason is basically this. We need to understand how Satan seeks to destroy the church. How Satan seeks to destroy the church. And, and if, if you look over church history, it would seem to me there's two different ways he seeks to destroy the church. One is through deception, and the other is moral compromise. One is through deception, that's all of your false doctrine and heresy and all of that. And the other is moral compromise. Wherever you have those things prevailing, you see Satan ravaging a church. And, and so here, the reason why the standard is set so high for, for the church is, well, because um, Christ would not have his ministry ravaged and destroyed. Have you ever talked to a believer who... who, who shares with you why they don't go to church? Well, a, a, a good number of the conversations I've had with people over the years is because the church is full of hypocrites and it starts with a pastor. You see, the stain and the imprint of moral stain starts here with the leadership. And if Satan can undermine the leadership and bring charge against it, what will happen in the church is moral compromise and will bring reproach upon the church and upon Christ. And the pastor and the elder are the poster children of the campaign of destruction. And so if the church permits pastors and elders to serve who are known to be moral compromised, they can be sure he won't just ruin that person, he'll ruin that congregation. And so for prejudicial reasons, we absolutely have to uphold this quality of above reproach, not chargeable with scandalous sin. Because we don't want to see men make shipwreck of their lives, and we don't want to see Satan ravage and destroy the church. So how do we implement this? I think that's important for us to think about now. We, we've discerned the meaning. We know it's a high standard. We, we understand the reasons. It's about the preservation and protection of the church. How, how do we implement this? And, you know, John Calvin has a great quote here that I, I really think is, um, 
is, a, is a heuristic device to help us lay hold of how do we work this out? And, and he says, by, by setting this, char- this character or quality first, he reminds every one of those who aspire to that rank to institute a careful examination of his self and his life. You see, Calvin says, policing begins with you. Institute careful examination. Institute careful examination. And be able to distinguish between sins and scandal. And watch for the lurking sins. It's sad and shocking to hear about the sins of some pastors and elders which eventually get exposed within the office. Early on in my ministry, I I learned of an elder who had served the presbytery who was known to be a godly man, was known to be a useful servant in, in the local church and congregation he was a part of, and he had a, a wife and, and a family. But um, somehow it was found out that while he kept charge of a, of a good family and wife in, in one city, the place where he went and did business, he had a mistress and children. And he kept up this external appearance for years. And it led to the greatest kind of spiritual devastation, as I'm sure you can imagine, in that church, and rippled across multiple other churches in the region. Because that man entered into the office with some problems that he wasn't accountable for, and eventually Satan exploited it to the detriment of him, his family, and the congregation. Right now, I can think of multiple pastors who have been guilty of plagiarizing some, if not all, of their sermons for years. That's tremendous gross wickedness. That is scandal because you are presenting your work when in reality it's somebody else's. That's lying. And it's gross lying. I know of the most pious pastor I probably ever encountered in the ministry who was willing to scold almost anyone for anything, including smoking a cigarette at break at church meetings, who was found out to be carrying on a long-term affair with a woman two states over from where he pastored. The list could go on and on and on, but my point in all of this is that they didn't sort of get these problems like someone catches an airborne virus when they became a pastor or elder. The problem began beforehand, and it began with failure to institute careful inspection and investigation of one's life. The man who would aspire to eldership ought to institute careful examination. It's wonderful that a man aspires to the office of overseer, and I pray that for all the men. At the same time, you must aspire, not just to the excellence of the work, but the excellence of the character, and ask, do I match this character? Is there repentance that I need to conduct?
Is there carefulness of inspection of myself that, that I need to undergo? Are, are there things I, I must change about my life and, and spend the time bringing forth the fruit of repentance from first? That is requisite. Because the Apostle says here, an overseer must be. And so we keep the standard as high as possible this morning as we think about this grand general quality of the eldership. That brings us now to the second quality, and that's the husband of one wife. And, you know, it's quite interesting to me that the apostle sets the standard very high in this general term, and he moves immediately to a relational concept to test it. It's one thing to have um, a moral attribute that feels sort of, well, um, slippery. It feels outside of us. It feels difficult to define and maybe to grasp fully. So he moves from what feels very general to what is so obviously concrete and testable as the first concrete explication of what it means to be above reproach. Husband of one wife. And I must say here, as I take this particular qualification up, it's subject to to multiple interpretations, as you might well imagine. Some have thought that it is prohibiting polygamy. Others have argued that it's requiring that a, a man could only be married to one wife his entire life, even if he was widowed or divorced on legal grounds. Others would say that um, it is a marital requirement for ministry. In other words, you can't be a pastor or elder unless you're married. And then finally, there is the, uh, the idea that this means faithfulness in marriage. So does it mean polygamy? Absolutely it does. Absolutely, it, at baseline level, would require this. That fits perfectly with where we're going to go. But, but in Paul's day, especially among the Jews and among some in, in the Greco-Roman Empire, the polygamy, polygamy was lawful and tolerated, just as it is to this day in some parts of the world. And, and such a person cannot serve as an elder because they don't meet the moral requirement. That's as plain as day. The idea that uh, a man can only be married once in his life if he was widowed or, or he was lawfully divorced makes no sense because the law makes no requirement like this. So that's easily dismissed. Then there are those who say there's a marital requirement for ministry. And I have encountered this in the Reformed Church. In fact, I knew a group of, of gentlemen who every single time they voted on a presbytery exam of a single man aspiring to the ministry, they would vote no because they would pull out this particular qualification and say, the elder must be the husband of one wife. Do you have a wife? No. Flunk. Now, there's much to come in the position. We think it would be helpful for a pastor or elder to be married and to have children. We think it would be. Because they are experiencing what the rest of the congregation, or the majority, perhaps, of the congregation is enduring. We think it's very useful. But just because Rome illegitimately cancels out marriage for priests doesn't mean that we have to overinterpret this text. 
We don't need to box ourselves into false interpretations simply because it makes life harder for somebody that we disagree with about other things. There doesn't seem to be basis for this. The Apostle Paul himself commends the single life because he says, just like me, I have more time to serve. I don't have to care for a wife and children. So I'm like a sort of a ministerial Swiss army knife. I can do twice as much. And there's something to that. I would say it's unusual for a single man to have the same capacity to marry um, in a congregation because they simply don't have the full range of life experiences. It doesn't mean their, their, their ministry is, is useless or unprofitable or unfruitful. But be careful with that. What does it really mean, though? And I would say, maybe one way into understanding what's at stake here is to turn over to 1 Timothy 5.9. And here the apostle is expounding upon the qualities of a woman who could be taken onto the list. She would be taken into the church's care for uh, financial provision, and there was an agreement that she would be useful in the life of the church. So it says here, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Well, the language and the structure is nearly identical. You just swap out. Uh, here it says one man, woman, literally, and in our text it would be one woman, man. But clearly this does not mean polygamy, because polyandry was unheard of at least in the Greco-Roman world, so that wouldn't bear on it at all. Um, there's no, clearly there's no marital requirement here, just the opposite of it, so that doesn't fit. What it seems to be saying is that she is a person who has been known for purity and chastity after being made a widow. And so a good number, I would say even probably the majority of scholars look at this quality of, um, of husband of one wife, a one woman man, and say this refers to monogamy, faithfulness, sexual purity within marriage. And you know, there's a good reason for that. In the Greco-Roman world, it was unheard of. There was no such thing as monogamy. The men went to prostitutes as a part of worship. All of them. So that, they're, they're, that, that right there rules it out. Number two, if you had any means at all, you had a slave girl at home for your pleasures. You were perfectly entitled to have any relations you wanted with a single woman. And you had a wife so you could have legitimate children. That's it. And so the very nature of the situation in which Paul writes was, was a context that was rife with promiscuity, at least among men, and it's never changed. Christianity absolutely radically challenged this worldly, fleshly, immoral, godless impulses. It still does in our culture. The point here is to say that the standard is, is faithfulness within the marriage. To be a one-woman man, not an adulterer, not a philanderer. The one who keeps his marital vows. 
I think this is credibly important to be the very first concrete application of what it means to be above reproach. It is so testable. But it involves two separate things, right? It involves your word, because you take a vow. And it involves your appetites. Are you the kind of person that can keep your word? And are you the kind of person that can restrain yourself? Do you have a, a proven track record of discipline and restraint? You see, whether we can measure uh, one's um, conformity to, to sort of abstract print, this is easy. This is very easy to test and to evaluate. Given the examples of the so many who have fallen in this area, once they've come into public ministry, it's absolutely requisite that we take this test and establish it. After all, if, um, if a wife can't trust her husband in the most intimate of relationships in life, how could the church? I mean, if she has no reason to, why in the world would he have responsibility over multiple people? So I think that's the right understanding of this qualification, and it's one that is easily discerned and tested. So this is about integrity. Does he keep his word? Is he a man of moral discipline and restraint? And then after that, what we get are a series of, of more general uh, qualifications, but all of them are, are really important because they, they color and they shade in in different ways this kind of above reproachness that the Apostle Paul is, uh, is requiring here. So you come into the next one, and, and we have temperate. And, um, you know, that needs a little bit of translation for us, because the word literally means uh, holding no wine. Well, it can't mean that here. Otherwise, it would make nonsense out of verse 3. Not addicted. Why would that even be a further qualification? Not addicted to wine. If Paul had already said, holding no wine, having no wine, drinking no wine, that would be illogical and contradictory. It would make no sense. And so, uh, basically, the, the right way to see this here is this is about composure, mental restraint, control mentally, calmness. You see, a person who is temper is sober-minded, clear-thinking, in their judgment. They're free from rash actions. They don't swing like a pendulum between ideas and practices and thoughts. They're settled on truth. They're fixed on truth. They have mental control. They're disciplined in their thought life and in their mind. So this is very important because it begins to tell us what kind of person is above reproach. It's somebody that has a disciplined thought life and who has a composed thought life. They are not in a state of unrest. They are not frenzied. They are not being moved by emotion. They're under control. Then the next one helps us just a little bit further. There's a shade different uh, meaning here between prudent and temperate. Temperate is about, let's say, the quality of the state of the mind being one of composure and restraint and self-discipline. Prudence now is, is about that, but flowing now into 
action, self-control in thought and behavior. That's what is meant here. Self-control in thought and behavior. It's the kind of mental discipline and mental action which spills over into the life. So it's not just that we have a composed person, but we have a person who thinks and acts into conformity with his thought life. Very important. Very important. You think through the Scriptures, you see how often this term is used, and there's great richness added to our understanding when we think about it. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Mark chapter 5. And that that gathering demoniac. You remember uh, the man who walked among the tombs? Who uh, cried out with shrieking loud sounds everywhere he went? Who uh, you heard before you saw because everywhere he went he was carrying his chains. They had tried to restrain him in the villages to keep him away from harming other people. And he was so powerful under this control of the demonic that he, he burst the chains. He was restless and and uh, unrestrainable and undisciplined and self-destructive. And yet, we learned that when he came to Jesus, the people who saw him and observed him, this is what they said. He was seated, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. Prudent. Saffron. That's our word here. Before he was rambling, walking all around, wasn't clothed. And what is he doing? He's in his right mind. This is the impact and influence of the gospel. The gospel difference is that it, that it penetrates to the mind and it, it restrains thought. It brings us into a, a mental state of composure and not being agitated. Spilling out into our life. Mental transformation leading to life transformation. I'm just going to show you this text. Titus chapter 2. Since we're so close to it, just look over there for yourselves here. And the one thing I want you to notice as we take up this particular quality is just how pervasively it is applied to the church. So if you put your finger on verse 2, you read, Older men are to be temperate. That's our term. It was translated prudent over in the pastoral in, in, two, in 1 Timothy 3.2. Here it's translated, for the life may not understand why, temperate. But it says the older man, this isn't the elder, this is the person who's growing older on clock time and calendar time. The older one gets, the more they are to be like this, temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Young women, verse 5, they are to be sensible, Pure workers at home. This is the kind of lesson that the older woman is to provide for the younger woman. The very first thing is to be sensible, to be disciplined in mind in such a way that it spills out and flows over into the life. Look at the young men in verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Same word for prudent that we had over here. And then if you were to take verse 7 and 8 and say, This just may be the explication of what prudence means in practical terms. You've got a good working handle on what it means. It says, show yourself an example in good deeds, purity in doctrine, dignified sound in speech that's beyond reproach. No one have anything bad to say about us. This is it right here. 
This is what prudence is. Exemplary in deed, pure in doctrine, dignified in life, sound in speech, not chargeable. Let me show you one other passage. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. I, I think this adds some, some more nuance and color to the term prudent, and I think it's a helpful text to illustrate the force of the idea and to draw it out of the realm of um, the, the purely mental and, and maybe a little bit slippery to, to clutch and to hold. But, but here it is in verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. Now, I think discipline's a pretty good translation, but I think the King James Version is better here. Of a sound mind. It's our same word for prudent, and I think it nails it here. Of a sound mind. You see, why did Timothy need this exhortation? Because he was backing down. He's like all of us. We get a little coward in us when we get overwhelmed. Right? It happens. We get a little coward in us when we get overwhelmed. When the slings and arrows are flying, i got no one to stand with me. It can happen. That was happening to Timothy. What the Apostle Paul said is, I want you to understand something, Timothy. You don't have a spirit of timidity. When you became regenerate, and when you were ordained to office, when you were raised up by Christ, and when you were given Christ's gifts for ministry and for eldership, what happened is the Spirit of God put some steel in your spine. You have a sound mind. And that needs to spill over in leadership quality and action. Not cowardice. Or compromise, but bold, strong, convicted leadership. People of God, there is a, a vast need for this in the church. Cowards and compromisers cover their tracks under the guise of being peacemakers and unifiers. I don't need to give you the examples. I think you can just look all around us and see we have a church full of leaders who are peacemakers and unifiers. Those are euphemisms for cowardice. Because you are not given the option to bend Christ's rules just because everybody else is. In reality, what they are is windsurfers. They... They, they wet their finger and they stick it in the wind and they find where the prevailing winds are flowing and it just turns out their positions all of a sudden align with it. And here's the, here's the, the elder and the pastor who's taken vows to uphold and teach certain doctrines and practices and they're now standing alone. Because it just turned out I'm a peacemaker. I'm a unifier. That's my identity. And what did you say about them? They're blessed. Timothy, men of God, people of God, you have not been given a spirit of timidity, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I can't promise you safety in doing the right thing. But you can look at yourself in the mirror. You can say, I did what Christ charged me to do. Stand on conviction to not waver. Though the people around you who are supposed to support you may even violently react against you. Prudence. Self-control spilling over into principled action. And you know what, people of God? This is, uh, this is the characteristic of the believer. We bounced around. Turn over to, to Tim, uh, Titus 2 again. I want you to see that. I think it's very important that you see it. This is the characteristic of the believer. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What do you think the grace of God is that's appeared? Was Jesus Christ incarnate, isn't it? It is Jesus Christ incarnate, the, the very Son of God becoming incarnate, living among us, taking upon Himself a true human nature in order that He might be like His brethren in all things, sin accepted, so He could serve them as priest and sacrifice. Okay? Gospel. Notice the very first word in verse 12. Instructing. The gospel instructs. What does the gospel instruct? To deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly. That's our word prudent. You see, prudence is a gospel quality. Prudence is a gospel issue. This quality of eldership that the Apostle Paul hangs out before the church as an essential requirement is born of grace. So it's not just going to be in the people who aspire to the office and are actually installed and ordained to the office. This is the kind of thing that is to characterize everyone who is a believer at least. Because that's what the gospel instructs. It instructs godliness, sensibility, discipline. If we're having trouble being prudent, careful in our thinking and action, we need to go back to the gospel. We need to go back to the gospel. It shouldn't be that we're acting insensibly. It shouldn't be that, that we're caught up in a frenzy all the time. It shouldn't be that we're in mental confusion and panic and disorder and disarray. Breathlessly seeking. We should be calm and composed and in control of our mind and self-control, then discipline in our thoughts, spilling over into our practice. Because that's what the gospel teaches us. That's the grace which was secured for us by the gospel. Finally, we have respectable. This is really easy. Cosmios. It means well-ordered. Well-ordered. It's the very word which we get cosmetics from. 
a well-ordered life because God is a God of order. Men of God, people of God should be ordered, respectable. To be above reproach is to be an ordered person, to have an ordered life, not in disarray, not in confusion, disciplined, controlled. That's what it is to be above reproach. We have these categories now. Discipline controls his mouth, his attitudes, his behavior, controls his appetites, keeps his words, his temperate, prudent, and respectable. So we come now to conclusion and application. And in our first message, which was our last one, I challenged all of the men here to consider whether they have been called to the office of elder. And the reason I did that is because the Word of God does. And what the Word of God says, if you do desire that office, you desire a good thing because the work of the office is excellent. And it is incumbent upon all of us to desire the excellence. Whether we ever become an elder or not, it is, it is, it is irrelevant so I still commend it for the same reasons this morning, but I add a shade different uh, sense here. I commend the aspiration to the office, not just on account of the excellence of the work, but the excellence of the character. See that? You should want a work that requires you to aspire to moral and spiritual excellence. Men ought to desire the quality of moral integrity. After all, what man in Christ would rather not live above reproach? That's the call. What husband would not to be a one-woman man? You better... You took a vow for it. What, what man wouldn't want to be temperate and prudent and respectable? We all should. But you know, it doesn't just end there. That's my appeal to the men this morning, but my appeal to all of us who are listening this morning is that there are qualities here which are applicable to all of us. You know... Uh, Last week we looked at Ephesians 4.13 to ground the work of the ministry. We said there's a, there's a near purpose and a far purpose. And the near purpose was this work of eldership and ministry was the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. But the far purpose was this, to help the saints grow into maturity. And that maturity is the measure of the stature of Christ. What are you supposed to be? What is the ministry and the eldership supposed to aim at for all of us? Well, to be like Christ. You say, what does He look like? What does this mature man look like? And the answer is, He looks like this. This is the measure of a mature man and woman of God. This is what it looks like to be seeking conformity to the stature of Christ. Are you an older man? You're called to be temperate in all things. 
Are you a younger woman? You are called to be sensible. Are you a younger man? You are called to be sensible. Are you a believer? Has the gospel, has the grace of God and Jesus Christ appeared to you? Well, it's preaching a message to you every time you think about the cross. Live soberly, righteously, and godly. You see, these qualifications at the end of the day aren't just marks of character for elders. They are that. But they're for the believer. This is what it looks like to be growing in maturity and conformity to Christ. Above reproach, sexual purity, temperate, prudent, and respectable. May God give us grace to seek to cultivate this measure of stature and maturity that looks like Jesus Christ.